trying to see each week how they aren't just random rules. They're not things that God picked out to test to see whether you really love him or not. They actually hold out for us a picture of an astoundingly beautiful life. The Ten Commandments are what it looks like to love God and to love people. And after two weeks of introduction, we're going to begin the first commandment, the foundational commandment, the one for which the rest of the commandments are actually built off of. And what I hope tonight is that some of you, I can't implant my experience, but I can remember in college hearing my campus minister talk about this. And it was a watershed moment because I felt like I began to understand for the first time why I do the things that I do and why sin is so hard to control. And I hope it does that for you as well. Let me pray for us. Father, would you um, meet us in your word tonight? You promise and you tell us that your word is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And we need to know that tonight, Lord, because we come um, with wandering hearts, we come with tired hearts, or we come uh, cynical. Uh, but Lord, there's others of us that it's been a very sweet period. And Lord, I pray that as you speak to us through your first commandment that we would see, first of all, how often we break it, but that second of all, how you love uh, helpless uh, sinners. And so will we see that you are a God who is better than we think. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Exodus 20, verse 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. <clears throat> the grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God, it stands forever. Okay, three things. We're going to look at the reality of, of other gods, the appeal of other gods, and then the freedom and the beauty of the one true God. First, the reality of other gods or idols. In an effort to stay, stay up with current events and meet you where you are, I want to quote, uh, quote Tom Brady for you. Tom Brady, right, about to be a Super Bowl uh, quarterback yet again. There's a very interesting interview uh, with Tom where he had a, uh, a moment of, I think, incredible honesty. Right, remember, Tom Brady, three Super Bowl rings, married to a supermodel. And he's in a conversation and he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think there's got to be more than this. This isn't it. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And then the interviewer asks him this, well, what's the answer? Listen to Tom Brady's honesty. He says, I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of parts about me that I'm trying to find. Which of the rings do you like best? He asked him, what's your favorite? He said, my favorite ring, I've always said, is the next one. The next one's always the best. And I, I throw that out. I kind of begin with that because I think Brady is actually willing to verbalize something that we all feel. And we're actually ashamed to say that there is, we think there is something out there that's just beyond my grasp. That if I just get it, if I just try harder, it'll finally make me okay. It'll finally make my life make sense. It'll finally make me feel secure, and it'll finally make me feel like I matter. And Brady admits that he thought building his life on the success of football and prominence would finally bring significance and satisfaction. And he says, 
I don't know. There's just got to be more than this. And I would suggest that, that Tom Brady there reveals the reality of the first commandment. When the Ten Commandments begin with this command, you shall have no other gods before me, it's showing, it's showing something incredibly important about what it means to be human. Remember how we've said the Ten Commandments will help you get to know yourself. They serve as a mirror. They reveal who you are. Well, here it is. Commandment one assumes that you worship. It assumes that you have a God. The question is never, do you have a God? It's what or who is your God or gods? That's always the question. The command assumes you have other gods. For Brady, I don't know, I'm not trying to pin him in. It seems to be football success. For you and me, it's probably a myriad of other things. And I would put that before you, that if, if you feel like the Bible's archaic or maybe out of touch with reality, I would ask you to listen. This is, I think, profound anthropology. I challenge you to find a better explanation than commandment one than to make sense of who you are and why you do the things that you do. Because this is what the Bible says, that when God creates man and woman, back in Genesis 2, we are told that that they and then all of us are made in God's image. And one of the things that means, among many other things, is that we by nature are meant to derive our definition, the knowledge of who we are, our meaning, not from ourselves, but from God, from the God who made us and loves us. (coughs) And so... Humanity, humanity, it's kind of like we have an IV needle. You know what I mean? That draws life out of something. And the Bible assumes that you have to lock onto something to help make sense of yourself. Do you, have to, you have to lock onto something and say, here, this is what will satisfy me. This is what will make my life okay. And you will never understand yourself, I would suggest, until you see that you're made in the image of God and you therefore are built to draw satisfaction in life and meaning from Him and Him alone. You have to live for something. You have to worship something. And what happens is in Adam and Eve, when they sin in Genesis 3, when they rebel against the one who has loved them and cared for them, the result is separation from God, alienation from Him. The ivy needle comes out of God. But the reality of humanity doesn't change. We still have to worship. We still have the ivy needle. We still worship. It's just now we look and we try to hook it into anything and everything but God to find out who we are. You're a dependent being. And from birth, you are desperately looking to something or someone to give you meaning and acceptance and love and truth. That is one of the reasons that have no other gods is the first commandment. Because the root of all sin, the sin beneath every sin, it is idolatry. It is loving something more than God. It's worshiping. Always. And this is how I'm asking you to start to understand yourself. You never just simply lie. You never just break the ninth commandment. You lied because you so desperately needed to look good. Because looking good in these people's eyes makes life work for you. 
That's why you lied. That's why you distorted the truth. You never simply cheat. You cheat because if you make a bad grade, you won't get the future that you so desperately need. And that future, you're convinced, is what's going to satisfy you and make life work for you. You never simply gossip. We gossip because we, what makes us feel like we matter is when I feel better than you. There's just something about gossip that is just so enjoyable because you did that and I didn't. And we never simply lust. You lust because the person on the computer screen or in real life makes you feel alive, makes you feel, even for a brief second, a sense of significance. There's something, the sin beneath every sin is this. And you will... You will shallowly, if that's a word, deal with sin until you begin to see that there's something underneath. And so first, the commandment really does reveal something about ourselves, that we are built to worship. It's not a question, do you have a God? Even if you're here tonight and, you, and, you claim, and you're, proclaimed, you're a proclaimed atheist, you are drawing life from something. You're bowing the knee and saying, this is what's going to make life worth it. And that's your God. The question is, who or what is your God? So what's the appeal of these false gods? I want you to understand how idolatry works. I think this is so key. This, this is why we so easily and so naturally give ourselves to other gods. Joseph Darwin, uh, he read that Romans 1 passage. False gods deceive you. Look at it in your seat in verse 25. This is talking about how we give worship to other gods... But look at the word that it uses to describe idolatry, giving worship to false gods. It says, because they, that's us, exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The, the Apostle Paul wrote Romans says that idolatry is exchanging a truth for a lie. At the heart of all idolatry is deception. It's a lie. Well, what's it lying about? What's the deception? Well, all false gods, everything but the true God, look, they are good things. Recognize that, right? It says we exchange the worship that the Creator deserves. We give it to a creature. Well, that's by definition something that God made. Everything that God made is good. That thing is not the problem. Right? Uh, sex is good. Uh, relationships are good. People's approval is good. Uh, alcohol is good. Everything that he made is good. But the promise is this. That if you make that the ultimate thing, if you orient your life around it, it'll satisfy you. It'll love you. It'll take care of you. It'll save you. It'll, it'll make life work for you. And the deception works because these things are good. And it actually feels like it's working for a while. Like, when you get into grad school, like, it feels good. And it should. But it starts feeling like it was worth it. This was worth it to, to forsake everything else so that I could have this future. And it starts to kind of satisfy you. When relationships are the ultimate thing and she begins to like you, like, it feels good. It brings a sense of security and meaning. When friends laugh at you because your jokes are funny and you feel like you're finally in with them, it feels good. 
But those things will not save you. They will not forgive you. They will not sustain you, and they will not last. C.S. Lewis says this, Pleasure, money, power, safety are, are all, as far as they go, good things. The badness consists in pursuing them in the wrong way or by the wrong method or too much. Wickedness, when you examine it, turns out to be the pursuit of some good in the wrong way. Isn't that interesting? Wickedness, when you examine it, turns out to be the pursuit of some good in the wrong way. It's what Lewis is saying, is what the Bible is saying, that the problem isn't your idol. The problem is what you've asked it to do for you. The problem is, is what you're pursuing it for. And so that's the deceit, that's the lie. It holds out this promise of, of really of salvation. But that brings the second aspect. Remember how God began these commandments. If you were here with us last week, or even you can look at verse 2. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. And then he gives them the commandments. Well, what is the slavery that God delivers us from? It's slavery to false gods. It's slavery to idols. This is the other part of how idolatry works. Is it promises you life. It promises that it will satisfy you, that, that it's worth it, that it will love you. But in reality, when you give yourself to it, it becomes a slave master. And you start working for it. And it will grind life out of you. That's what my friend Way Rutherford calls the dirty little secret of idolatry. That when you worship anything besides the real God, when you give yourself to it, it flips around and instead of, instead of it giving life and meaning to you, it starts, taking you, it starts taking it from you. It starts taking your life. It actually starts dehumanizing you. If, you, uh, if we have any office lovers uh, in this room, when, uh, when sadly, in my opinion, it started going downhill, right, when, uh, when Michael finally left the show, this interesting thing happens, right? A new boss enters, and when D'Angelo Vickers enters... He starts interacting with Andy. And what is Andy's thing? What's his spiel? What makes him okay? It's that he's the funny guy. You remember this episode? And he is astounded. He's actually, he's paralyzed by the fact that his new boss actually doesn't find him funny. And so one time they're sitting in the break room and D'Angelo says, I'm having a rough day. Andy, make me laugh. And Andy like puts his hand in a toaster and burns himself. He pours like cheese puffs all over him. He, he pours hot coffee on his, on his groin. D'Angelo makes, uh, makes him eat just, just, I think it's soap. And he looks a fool. And as funny as that is, why was Andy doing that? Because he's saying, I have to have the approval of the new boss. And in order to, do, in order to get that, I'm willing to sacrifice my dignity. And we laugh at that. But don't you know that feeling? That when people's approval isn't just a good thing, but it's the thing you have to have? I mean, surely you felt this. It starts off fine. In high school, it meant you were, it meant you were nice to your parents, and you were funny, and you had a good time, but you weren't too crazy. Because being too crazy in high school actually isn't cool. You'll lose people's approval. And so you were also religious, but you weren't too crazy religious because that loses people's approval. You don't want to be seen as a wacko. But then what happened? You came to college, 
And now for some of you, those good times, the, the, the partying, the hilarity, it just kept increasing because, because you've got to keep people's approval. And you've got to feel okay. You've got to feel like you matter. And so you're crazy on weekends, but still nice and respectful to, to your parents. And you, haven't you felt it? That you're not really controlling people's perceptions of you. People's perceptions of you are controlling you. They're running your life. And you feel like you don't even know who you are anymore. And it's exhausting. And it never ends. And it's actually dehumanizing you. It's slavery. When grabbing someone's attention because of the way you look, starts being the way that you function, you felt this you felt this slavery, ladies. Of course it feels good. And there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with being beautiful. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be beautiful. I can say all those kind of things. But it is crazy how fast it happens, isn't it? Like how early in your life was it that you discovered that the way that you look would get attention from boys? And it's crazy. It becomes so second nature to start functioning that the way that I look is the key to get people to like me and the key to get people to have conversation with me. It is so a part of who you are, you cannot even imagine what a day without that would be like. And have you felt the slavery? That the way that a male thinks about you, it actually controls you. It controls the way that you dress. It controls your conversation. It controls your emotions. It becomes a slave master. When having it all together and being good and moral and looking good is what makes you feel significant because you're better than other people, you know this. It feels good for a while, but then it's slavery. Because you know that deep within, you're not who everybody thinks that you are. You know what's going on behind closed doors. You know how selfish you really are, but you feel trapped. You thought you were controlling other people by your goodness, but now it's controlling you, and you have no real relationships with people because nobody knows the real you because it's too scary to share that. And the ultimate slavery is this. When you fail other gods... When you disappoint them, they will not forgive you. They never do. They just tell you to work harder, try harder, do better tomorrow. None of those things will ever satisfy you, and they will never forgive you. They just make more demands. And in the end, false gods, they're lying to you. They are good things, but when you latch onto them, when you worship them, because they were never made to satisfy you, they were never made for you to worship, it always ends in slavery and it always ends up dehumanizing us and destroying us. So we've seen the reality of other gods. We've seen how they appeal to us through deception and then slavery. But I hope you're feeling the contrast because there is a way out. There is one who will satisfy you. There is one who will love you, who will not lie to you, who does not play a game, who will bring you significance. He says, if you give your life to me, if you put me first, I will not use you. I will not spit you out. 
I will love you and take care of you and forgive you. I'll do the things that those other things failed to do. And so I hope the first commandment has exposed us all. I hope, I hope you realize this. Even as a Christian, you are not obeying the commands of God today. We're not. If you think you are, that you're lost. Every command needs to first expose that, man, even as a Christian, I keep giving myself to other things. But secondly, I want you to see the beauty of this command. That if other false gods lead to lies and to empty promises and to slavery, then when God says, have no other gods before me, worship me as the real God, he is calling you to a life of truth and freedom and satisfaction. It has to be. That's the reason for the command. So how do you do it? How do you come into this freedom and this beauty of worshiping and serving the real God? Well, just two things. First, we actually have to identify these false gods that we serve. We've got to get a, get a kind of handle on our idols. You can look at your handout. I've listed a bunch of questions. from. Um, these are from Tim Keller. And if you, if you really analyze yourself with these questions, you can start identifying them. Like, what do you daydream about? Your mind, in my mind, all, it e- most easily flutters to that which you are convinced will ultimately make you happy. Always. What do you worry about? Usually the things that you, we are most anxious about are the things that we are convinced, if I don't have them or I, I lose them, they will ruin my life. That's a God. What if you lost it uh, would make you feel like life isn't worth it? Whatever that is... That's the false god. And idols are tough to identify because they're so deceptive in nature. Here's what I want you to hear me say. The hardest idols to identify are the ones that you actually get patted on the back for. And they make life work for you. This is why some of you... This is why some of you have no idea the danger you're in. Because the mark that you're okay... What you're convinced brings you meaning and, and, and that you and God are, are good is, is, is your good behavior. You're convinced that life is working because you're nice and you're involved in religious things. And you do not see that underneath that is a worship of control. That what makes life work for you is that you're a good person. And starting to see that is big. Identifying your idols is a huge deal. I know it doesn't feel like it. At first it feels depressing because you start seeing how messed up we really are. But until you get this, you will always deal with sin shallowly. Always. Your make-out sessions at night, until you see this, the only way that you will deal with them is simply say, well, we just don't need to lie down together anymore or we just don't need to hang out after this, this amount of time or something like that. And that's great. Man, the problem's much deeper than that. Until you see this, the solution for your exhaustion every semester will just be you got to figure out how to manage your schedule better. And you will not see what's really going on as a worship of something. And until you see this, you will think your, your sin will be dealt with when you just finally change your circumstances and get out of college. And so identifying your idols is big. 
when you start seeing the things that you cling to for life and significance, you will realize this. I can't fix this. I like can't just decide tomorrow to not let human approval rule the day. It is so deep within me. And at that point, you'll start feeling helpless. And my friends, helplessness is a wonderful place to be. Because when we're helpless, you are finally ready to receive the real God. Because the real God only comes into your life by sheer grace. By those who admit that they're helpless. And just open empty hands. And so the second thing is after you identify, you have to be convinced of the beauty and the reality of who God is. You see, the reality is this. We worship whatever we love the most, period. We will give ourselves to whatever captivates our heart. You don't have to tell yourself what to worship. You just do. I just worship whatever is most beautiful to me. And what you begin to realize is that an idol cannot simply be removed. A false god cannot be removed. It has to be replaced. It has to be replaced. I have seen my wife, I should have asked your permission on this, sorry, Eliza, who, she would tell you this, she loves sleep. I mean, she loves sleep. Don't we all? She will sleep until the last possible minute every morning. And that's great. But there's there's a few years in, in her life where I saw something amazing happen. She joyfully gave up sleep. She joyfully functioned on three or four hours a night. Do you know why? Because these little kids captured her heart. And putting away that, putting away sleep for that, was worth it. This is where the command to have no other gods is actually command to see reality. See the deception of idols, but then see Jesus and receive Jesus. Here's the deal. You will never receive him. You'll never give yourself to Jesus until you realize that he is good and beautiful and trustworthy. And so that's my final appeal, is look at Jesus. I don't know what you think God is like tonight, but I'll tell you who he is. He is the satisfaction of your desires. He's the one you were made for. He's the one that you're looking for behind every idol. Here's who God is. 2,000 years ago, God the Father loves this world so much, he loves you so much that he sent his one and only son. God himself takes on flesh and he walks this earth. And for 33 years of his life, he is the only human to never have any other gods. It's amazing to watch him. He's the God man. His whole life, he sticks his IV into his heavenly father and says, you are my pleasure. You are my definition. You are worth it. He even says, my food is to do the will of my father. Everything that he does is because his father is supreme. But then at amazing crossroads of his life, here comes the beauty of Jesus. It's the night before he's going to die, and he is in a garden praying. And what he begins to see brings such agony that he starts sweating drops of blood. 
Because what opens in front of him as he is praying is a taste, a taste of what, of what the Father's will is going to mean for him. The one that he loves, the one that he treats as supreme. God's the Father, God the Father's will for Jesus is to go to a cross and be cursed. And so Jesus is on his knees. This, I want you to feel the crossroads of Jesus' life. Put God first, trusting He's worth it. And as He's praying, He realizes that's not just going to mean physical death. He's going to face the eternal wrath of His Father, the one He loves more than anything else. Can you imagine the false gods that were appealing to Him that, that night? Just ditch your Father, choose safety, choose comfort. We punt God in the face of so much less because I just don't want to lose somebody's approval, so I'll punch you. And Jesus starts asking the Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Don't let this be your will. Remove the cup of your wrath. And finally in the garden, Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And you see Jesus, yes, God, but yes, man, trusted his father, so treats his father's will with such supremacy that in obedience to the first commandment, he refuses to bow the knee to any other God. And he goes to the cross. Why does he do that? Because his father's will was to get you and to save you. And Jesus' will was to match his father's will and to have you as his bride for all of eternity. He wants to have you forever so that you experience the delight and security of being a child of God. And he does it. He does it. I heard an old, uh, I'll kind of end here, I heard an old uh, FCA story about an assistant coach years ago at Florida State back in the Bobby Bowden days, um, back when they won a uh, national championship uh, previously before this last one. And, and he's talking about how after they won that first championship, you know, the team was just in mass celebration in the locker room, and he's coming out to the tunnel to try to kind of find his family, and he is just overwhelmed with thousands of people telling him how much they love him, taking pictures with him, getting autographs. It takes him an hour and a half before he finally finds his wife and his kids. We fast forward a year later, and Florida State has a pretty mediocre season that actually ends with a loss to, to their arch rival, Florida. And as it becomes obvious that they're, that they're going to lose, you know, the stadium starts to empty. And they lose, and he goes back to the locker room, and, you know, the locker room is very somber, uh, a lot of people upset. And so he starts, he leaves the locker room, and he's walking out the tunnel. And there, the same tunnel, where just 12 months before, throngs of people were telling him how much they loved him. There's no one there, except for one person. And it's his wife, standing at the end of the tunnel. And she looks at him, and she hugs him, and she kisses him, and she says, you know I've been the only person in this place that really loved you. You know I'm the only one that's really cared for you this whole time. And they walk back to their car together. And that's it. Like as we, as we run after these other gods thinking that they love us, in the end, they disappoint us. And what you'll find is Jesus is standing there saying, I'm the only one who ever really loved you. The only one who cared for you. 
And the only way that people's approval is going to lose its power, the only way that idols start losing their grip on you, is when the unwavering approval of Jesus Christ is so real and so beautiful that it frees you to actually love people rather than take from them. And wouldn't that be a beautiful life? Behold your God. You will never give more to this God than he has given to you. That's my final appeal. Whatever is most beautiful, whatever is most desirable to you, it will control you. And at the end of the day, I think we just need to admit, Jesus just isn't all that beautiful to me. He's just not that attractive. And at that, I say this, okay, you're in a great place for your heart to be captured again tonight because the real God came for and dies for and loves and delights in people who forget how lovely he really is. He really did. That's a God worth leaving everything for. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, would you uh, delight us tonight, even even as we sing what maybe we struggle to believe, that in you we are finally satisfied. So I pray, Lord, that as we sing, we would taste the satisfaction of the love that you have for us. And that would enable us to forsake idols that destroy us and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.